Good morning to you. It's good to be together today to sing the Lord's praises. And each and every one of those songs were, I trust, carefully chosen and fit with the passage very well today. We will um, be in uh, Genesis 37 if you want to take your Bibles and flip back there as we um, proceed through this series in the life of Joseph. There will be long narrative sections that we will be covering and um, rather than um, expecting you to capture it all in, in one reading, of course we do ask you to read on Saturday night as well, um, sometimes that will be a part of our Old Testament reading, as was the case today. And what was read today was only part of our text, because we're going to be looking at verses 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 36. So this is the second in the series of the Gospel according to Joseph, as we're calling it. The subtitle might be From Pit to Palace and Trials, uh, From Trials to Triumphs. Now, we see something rather unusual today. We see a conspiracy to commit murder, a conspiracy to commit murder right here in the Holy Bible. Um, The conspiracy was done by what would become the very patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Now, I personally love murder, murder mysteries. I love to, to try to discern things and solve things and those kinds of things. And, and the Bible actually has many besides what we see in our text today. I mean, think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Pharisees and the Sadducees got together and they plotted how they might put him to death. You see the same thing with David as he covers up his heinous sin of adultery, right? He says, Uriah's got to go. How can we do it and make it look clean? Sadly, because of that sin, uh, in David's house, there was bloodshed, and Absalom, his own son, was conspiring how to put his father to death. And so you see these wicked acts. Some of you may be familiar with that musical Les Mis that's very popular. Um, some of you may not be, but there's, I have to give this uh, illustration that I considered uh, Fontaine as she sings a song somewhat halfway through or so called I Dreamed a Dream. As you know, Joseph was a dreamer. Last time we looked at those two dreams that he had. And in this song, she, before she sings this song, she's been left alone. She's been abandoned. I think it's France about in the early 1800s. She's unemployed. She's broke. Uh, she resorts to distasteful things to try to provide for herself and her child. She cuts her hair and sells it, pulls two of her teeth and sells that so that money may be provided to care for her daughter. Well, uh, just part of the lyrics go like this. I dreamed a dream in a time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiven. Now, in her circumstances, her hopes and her dreams were crushed as is part of this play. And so, too, for us, oftentimes, we we set a course early in our Christian life of where we think we will be. And oftentimes, those dreams and those plans get crushed. They get diverted. And life, as it were, deals us a bad hand, to use that uh, worldly vernacular. Well, it goes on, and it says... I had a dream my life would be so different than the hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed, now life has killed the dream that I had dreamed. 
And brethren, I, I read that because Gen- Genesis 37, what we read here, it just Joseph has these dreams. He's the favored one. And, and he's got these dreams that his brothers are going to bow down to him and, and so forth. He's given two dreams to, to indicate how sure that this will indeed come about. And yet we see him, the brothers plotting to kill him 50 miles away or more from home, the perfect opportunity, let's get rid of this kid. Let's get rid of this heir. And how quickly one's dreams can be changed. We need to remember, though, as we go through this entire series and even this particular chapter, God is sovereign in all things. He's working together and weaving something far more complex than anyone would be able to discern. If you didn't have Genesis 38 to 50, you would never guess how it ends, right? I mean, you would, we'd have probably a thousand different ideas, but we would never guess how it ends, and that is the complexity of God's sovereign, God's sovereignty being worked out in his people, really, as he builds a nation. But also, God is doing something. God is preparing the very, the, the very characters for what they would be. He's forming Joseph. Joseph needs to be humbled. Joseph needs, needs to be equipped of how he might serve the people down the road. And so that comes by difficult providences. Brothers need to be humbled and ultimately repent as we see that later. So let's go ahead and uh, ask God's blessing and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is vivid and honest. Thank you that it reveals even the sins of those of whom we are to look up to, who you have been pleased to use in mighty ways. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us. We pray that you would make your word plain to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember, the, the story begins in Genesis uh, chapter 37 and verse 1. There's a toxic home environment. I called it a dysfunctional family last week because anytime you have favoritism of parents to children, it's not going to go well, right? And then you have brothers that because of this favoritism, they hate him. They're envious of him. They're jealous of him. And it even says that, that what, you know, as they came together, maybe at the beginning of the day before going out to the field, that they could not even greet him a good morning. In the original, it's shalom, peace. It would be a greeting. They could not even give that to this 17-year-old favored one, the, the daddy's boy, as it were. And so what does daddy do? Daddy gives him a very decorated robe, a very colored robe. And this robe, as we said, this is a, like a royal robe. So it had long sleeves and it probably went down to the ankles. Now, a, a, a common um, worker's type of robe would be one that, that would stay above the knees and would be sleeveless. Why? So that manual labor could be done. But the very picture of this robe is that he is set apart. And Jacob wants him to be the heir, even though he's the 11th of 12 in the order of being uh, born. The dreams that we saw confirm what the robe communicates, right? Let's just look at it again. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He says, please listen to this. Verse 7, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheave rose up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. The second dream in verse 9 has, it says, behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to 
uh, to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him. What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And it says the brothers were jealous all the more. It does say, at least, that Jacob kept these sayings in his mind. He didn't completely dismiss it. It's the same idea as Mary pondering these things when the angel came to her. And so that's the context. It's a toxic home environment. It's a dysfunctional family. Uh, God is in the business of fixing dysfunctional families, and he's in the business of healing those toxic elements that would make a toxic environment uh, through the lives of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's so many types of Christ. I'll bring out a few more today um, in the life of Joseph uh, Joseph is the antitype. Christ is a, or Joseph is a, Christ is the antitype. And Joseph is the type. Of course, he's the object of the Father's love, just like Joseph was the object of Jacob's love. And it says of Jesus, his, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. You see the very same thing here. Well, so as we go through this, Genesis 37 to 50, you have some 14 chapters giving the the life of Joseph, more than even what is given in Abraham, even though there's few references in the New Testament to Joseph, we still have much to learn. And the overarching theme is that God is doing something. He's weaving a tapestry far more complex than what any one of us could have ever figured out as he builds a favored nation that would ultimately become the very people of God, even us in the new covenant. We need to consider the very providence of God. And sometimes, even in your life, you can be overtaken by intense trials. Look back in your life. There may be a time where he said, one day things were like this, and I woke up the next day, and they were turned upside down on their head. Have you ever had an experience like that? Maybe it's a season. Things were going great for many, many years, and then suddenly in the season of life, everything was turned upside down. Well, Joseph begins the day at the beginning of Genesis 37 as a prince wearing that beautiful robe. How does the chapter end? He's a slave. He's been stripped of the robe and he's being taken to a foreign land. And so providence can hit us in that way. We're going to consider verses 12 to 36, the rest of the chapter, under three heads, all beginning with a D, if that helps. First of all, we see the diligence of Joseph seen in his obedience to his father. We see the attempted destruction of Joseph by his brothers, and then finally the deception of the brothers to their father. So verses 12 to 13. We'll read verses 12 to 14. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go, or here I am, or literally, uh, behold me. It's different, translated differently. Verse 14. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and then he came to Shechem. Now, remember, we've said last week, this is not a chapter about brotherly love. It's a chapter about brotherly hate. It's the hate just comes off the pages again and again. 
And the term brother occurs 21 times in this chapter. You'll see it many times even in our text today. Jacob becomes concerned for all the other brothers who have gone out. He's concerned about their welfare. Now, we need to understand how pastoring of flocks was done. You know, nowadays, maybe if Mark Calabresi owned, um, you know, three acres or something, he would keep his flock in those three acres, right? Most likely. But even when you go in the East County, you'll see these, um, those metal things in the road. I don't even know what they're called, but it's to keep cattle from crossing at more extended barriers, that the, the using of other people's land for pasturing flocks and moving them around was quite common. Now, apparently they took the flock to Shechem, a considerable distance away, north actually. And it was, you know, this was a common thing to do. He quickly says, here I am, I will go. Now, Shechem was not a wise place for these brothers to go. Why? I mentioned it last time. Do you remember chapter 34 of Genesis? Remember uh, Simeon and, and Levi, uh, their sister is taken advantage of. They go to Shechem. They tell the men, of course, we'll intermarry. They get them to be circumcised. And on the third day when they were in agonizing pain, here these two men come, the sons of Jacob, and slaughters every male in the city. It says, Genesis 34, 25. They took his sword and came upon the city unawares, killed every male. Jacob's sons came upon and slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. And that was Dinah. Now, the, you know, one could argue, oh, well, it, maybe it's the safest place to go because the males have been wiped out. But certainly this is not a place where you're going to be real popular or welcomed. And, and perhaps other men have, had come in by this time, but not the wisest place for them to go. What is Jacob thinking? And then, of course, he sends um, Joseph into this territory. Now, in verse 14, when it says in both the ESV and the NAS here that go and see about the welfare of your brothers, that's the shalom. Go and see about the peace of your brothers and the peace of the flock. And so this 17-year-old is sent on a mission. He's in a mission in the wilderness. He's going a considerable distance away. Uh, about 50 miles to the north. That's, that's a considerable distance away. Um, and then we see something happen in verse 15. A man found him. Okay, there's all these like <laughs> happened upon or whatever. A man found him and behold, he was wandering in a field and the man asked, what are you looking for? So you picture it, the 17-year-old when we were on our vacation last week, uh, you know, we walked a lot of miles, but it wasn't anywhere. It wasn't quite 50 miles, but you can just imagine 50 miles. Here's a 17 year old, you know, just kind of going around and, and, and he's not asking, you know, have you seen my brothers? But a man providentially comes and, <clears throat> excuse me, and asked him. And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pastoring the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, so he happened to be in earshot, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So this is a critical moment in the story. If this man doesn't happen to be there to ask this, the teenager that's wandering around lost, what are you looking for? Nothing else would come to happen. So this just happened to be where the brothers had passed by. They're no longer in Shechem. This man tells them where, where they went, and Dothan was about another 10 to 12 miles north. 
So he goes another considerable distance. A little side thought is that, um, just to keep in mind, that the Lord, as he's weaving together this complex plan, that happened to be a major camel route through Dotham. So if if, if he doesn't move, if God doesn't sovereignly move the brothers up there, then the, the traders would not come by to buy Joseph to get him into Egypt. And so there's all of these kinds of things that you go, you know, it's fascinating. But we see Joseph here again as a type of Christ. He's sent on a mission to go and find his brothers, just like Christ goes and finds the lost sheep, goes and finds the sick. And, and, and it says in Luke 19 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, on the one hand, there's all kinds of uh, little nuances, but, uh, you know, Joseph is actually lost, but he's seeking his brothers in obedience to his father, Jacob. And does he find him? Look in verse 18. When they saw him at a distance, before he came close to them, they plotted against him of how they put him to death. So actually before Joseph found the brothers, the brothers spied and saw that here comes Joseph. So that's the diligence seen in this young man's life in obedience to his father, doing what he's tasked to do, not giving up, not whining, not crying, but seeking to please the father just as Christ did the whole time he was here. Secondly, the destruction of Joseph planned and plotted. And we see that in this next section. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. So we see a conspiracy. We see a plot right here. Not only what shall we do, but then how shall we cover it up? What will we say? A wild beast and so forth. And, and, and there's, there's complexity going into this. John Calvin says this, their cruelty was something more than madness, seeing that they did not shrink with horror at planning the death of their very brother be one thing to be planning the death of someone else which is still horribly wrong in the eyes of God but to be planning the death of their brother so we see a conspiracy what is a conspiracy you know there's all kinds of uh, conspiracy theories out there but what is a conspiracy it's when a few people get together uh, as small as two and they secretly plan something to put something together to to produce harm to a certain person or to make a heist, or something like that. And what we see before us is a wicked, sinful conspiracy. These brothers combine their thoughts together to seek to do evil to Joseph because they hate him so much. Again and again, there are a couple times, at least in the Proverbs, it talks about that how the wicked conspire against the godly. Psalm 83, verse 3 is another one. That the wicked plot against God's, I think it's called, his treasured ones. And so we see this again and again. So in verse 19, what do they say? Here comes Joseph, the favored one. No, they, they don't even use his name. Here comes the dreamer. You can almost hear the disdain in their mouth. The one that was giving us those dreams, here he comes. Here comes the dreamer. A couple of the older commentators um, translate this. Here comes the master of dreams. And what do they say? 
Let us kill him. Let us kill him. Now, the whole book of Genesis, you, the, the word kill, this is only the third time that it's used. And um, I think it harkens back to that very first murder because that's the first time that it was used. In Genesis 4.8, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He slayed him. And that's the word that these brothers use here, a very strong word. Not let us do harm to him. Let us slay him. Let us slice his throat, as it were. Let's take his life. In verse 21, um, they, they suppose that they can cover up, or verse 20, that they can cover up their deeds, that we will say this, and, da, 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 and they have all this plan as though they can pull the wool over God's eyes. Nothing escapes the eyes of God, brethren. It's what folly to think that you can be involved in something and somehow it will never come to the light of day. What an ignorant hypocrisy to even believe it. And then the second part of B, uh, verse 20, a wild beast devoured him. And then they say, let us see what will become of his dreams, as though they could thwart the very plan of God revealed in the dreams of Joseph. What folly! Calvin Miller says, animosity cloaked in piety is a demon, even if it sits in church praising their creator. Here are the brothers, the, the brothers of uh, the, the sons of Jacob, and here they are plotting such a wicked plan. Well, Reuben, you'll remember, he's the oldest, right? In verse 21, it says, Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. And Reuben further said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit. This is in the wilderness, but they do not lay hands, but do not lay hands on him. And then, so we're given a little commentary here. Um, Moses adds these words that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to their father. Now, this is very interesting that it's Reuben who suddenly has a measure of integrity. Let us not forget Reuben also has his baggage. You'll remember uh, we brought this up as well last time. I believe it was Genesis 35. Uh, you know, he. Engage in that wicked act of uncontrolled lust and lying with his father's wife. So therefore, he's disqualified himself as the firstborn. The other two brothers that we looked at, Simeon and Levi, the second and third in order, um, are disqualified because of their wicked acts. And that's why Joseph is chosen. So he suggests, throw them in the pit. Let's throw them in a pit. And I'll plan to rescue him later so he doesn't actually die. It is amazing that the brothers can have such blindness as they plot this crime. And, 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 and even so blind as to think that, okay, we could kill him take by force, or we could just let him starve to death in a pit. Is one better than the other? <laughs> I mean, that's how blind, that's what sin does to you. It blinds you. So verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers. So all of that happened and he hadn't even come yet. Like he's just on his way. Okay, we got to fi let's finalize this plan. I mean, he's getting closer and closer and closer. And then it says here in verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers. Was there any shalom? Was there any greeting? No. They stripped him of his tunic, the varied colored tunic that was on him. They took him, they threw him into the pit. 
Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Striking. They throw him in a dry pit to let him die of hunger and thirst. What cruel brothers. They think that, oh, well, let's not just kill him outright, but, but who throws him in the pit? It's their hands. It's still their hands that ultimately, as it were, will kill him. And so they throw him in the pit. Whenever you have envy and jealousy rearing its ugly head, do you know what disappears? Compassion, gentleness. That's why envy and jealousy should be hated, should be mortified, should be removed from your life. When you see yourself beginning to be given to envy and jealousy, realize that what's going to disappear is the ability to show compassion and to be gentle to others. Proverbs 27, verse 4, wrath is, is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before the jealous? Now, these verbs are very striking. Look at it in the text again. They stripped him. They stripped him. They took him and they threw him. I mean, these words are very powerful before us. They remove the coat, which signifies if we remove the coat, if we remove Joseph, these dreams will never come to pass. What folly. Now remember, we have no recorded words of Joseph here, right? It just says when he, when, when he reached the brothers, this is what they did to him. Now Joseph was the primary talker back in the earlier part of the chapter, remember, as he recounts the dreams, and it just says that the brothers hated him all the more. But here, he is silent. And again, just a parallel to Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. And Joseph here is stripped, and you get the idea along with these other verbs, stripped and took him and threw him that this this isn't a gentle like unbuttoning one button at a time and oh don't pull his arm back too far this is a vicious act this is an act of hatred against their brother their very brother jesus too was stripped wasn't he remember matthew 27 verse 28 they stripped him and they put on a scarlet robe now the difference again Jesus is wearing peasant clothes, and when they stripped him, they put on the scarlet robe for a season while they're beating him. Joseph has the the royal robe taken from him, and he's stripped naked. Now, the brothers, of course, we can just, uh, you know, you want to write in that a sense of conviction came over them. Oh, guys, what are we doing? Can't you hear them down there? Maybe we should rethink the plan and have some compassion. Is that what the text says? Look at verse 25. And then they sat down and ate a meal. <laughs> Let's have some fellowship. Let's enjoy some food. Let's, as one commentator put it, they sat down and they ate their pita and hummus sandwiches and just didn't think any more of it. I mean, there they are. They're just, you know, it's... Now, the narrative does not tell us that Joseph is calling for help. And, and, and so, you know, but... I think he is, and I think they're ignoring the pleas. In fact, uh, turn to chapter 42 and verse 21. When God finally does bring conviction upon the brothers, listen to how it's recorded. Verse 42, chapter 42, verse 21. 
Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, I don't want to read much more than that. You could keep reading to see what happens, but, but you can see that, that he was crying out, and they're ignoring and eating their food. This is their baby brother. You know, those of you with siblings, there's several families, you know, the, the youngest is kind of like, you, you protect him, right? Kind of look out for him, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. But you don't see that here. You don't see this here at all. In the pit, there's no rescue. So too, Jesus asked for rescue in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees as he cries out, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Now an angel does come and it does strengthen him for what lies ahead, just hours ahead as he would go to the cross. But there's no deliverance. And so too for Joseph. His cries go unanswered. There's no immediate deliverance. But as we just sung, we know the Lord will deliver. <laughs> and uh, he delivered Christ through the resurrection, obvious ultimately to bring victory. And he delivers Joseph. Well, moving on in verse 26, or verse 25, and then and they raise their eyes and they look. This is as they're eating in a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Uh, they're Camels were bearing uh, gum, balm, and myrrh on their way down to Egypt. Notice those phrases. Those aren't there on an accident. And then verse 26, Judah has an idea. And uh, that's another story. We'll see that in in the next chapter uh, if we cover that. What profit is there to us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianites, traders, passed by, and they pulled him up, lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And so they brought Joseph down to Egypt. Notice the repetitions of Egypt as um, the author, Moses, uh, wants us to, to get a picture of that. So, just in the time they're there, two groups pass by, the Ishmaelites and then the Midianites. Of course, Midian being a son of Abraham, that was the better choice. But uh, so, and, and the price was a fair price. Apparently, one of the 18th or 19th century commentators said it'd be equal to three pounds. I didn't bother doing the math to figure out what that would be, but he'd figure probably a couple hundred dollars. It was the normal price in our day for a slave. Now, why Egypt? Why is Egypt repeated? It's because Joseph has to get to Egypt. If he doesn't get to Egypt, God's remnant dies out of starvation in the coming famine. So Joseph has to get to Egypt, and and rather than God just making it very simple that I'll put it in Jacob's mind, they'll just go ahead and move there, you know, do some bargaining with Pharaoh before before the famine comes. No, All of these events lead up to that story, and we know the rest of the story. But these patriarchs did not. What is God doing? God is in the process of extracting his remnant, a very small remnant. Remember, it's only 70 people later in the narrative. Uh, He's extracting his remnant out of wicked Canaan and to put them safely into the womb of Goshen, 
under the protection of Egypt where they might multiply and where they might grow. He will plant them in that embryo, as it were. Remember, the, this, when the brothers come and all that, it's, I think it's some 20 years later. So time has to pass for this. And then, of course, another, what, 400 before Moses is called. He's preparing also these brothers who have engaged in this wicked act to be convicted for their sin, to mourn for their sin, to repent of their sin, to make them God-fearers so that they might indeed be the patriarchs of which would be the foundation of his covenant people. What an amazing providence. If Joseph doesn't bump into the man, remember he's wandering around lost and all that. If Joseph doesn't bump into the man, then he doesn't make it to his brothers. If he doesn't make it to his brothers, he doesn't end up in the pit. If he doesn't make it to the pit, then he's not sold into slavery to make it down to Egypt safely. So all of these providential events just weave together. And ultimately, if if he doesn't make it to Egypt to where the people could grow, then Moses doesn't lead the people out, leading all the way to Messiah coming and dying for our sins, and there's no salvation. So all of these events are so critical. First of all, we've seen the diligence of his obedience, the, the planned destruction of Joseph, and then more quickly, the brother's deception to their father, picking it up in verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. Little side note. So the day must have been long enough to where, remember, Reuben had the idea, don't kill him, just put him in the pit. But Reuben must have went off to take care of other business or something. But Reuben is deceived also, including his father. So Reuben, it says, he returned to the pit. Joseph was not there. He'd already been sold. Verse 30. He returned to his brothers. The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in blood, and they sent the varied colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see if it is your son's or not. Then he examined it and it was his son's tunic. And we'll pick up the reading here in a moment. So Reuben is deceived. The robe is desecrated. It's dipped in blood. It's as if they had the ability to destroy Joseph and his dreams to which the robe pointed. And what an irony this is, because a male goat is used to bring about deception to Jacob. Now, did Jacob ever engage in any deception? Yeah, turn back to chapter 27. Jacob and Esau, right? Esau was born first. And Jacob deceives Isaac into getting the blessing in Isaac's old age. So again, just another one of these providences, but deception reaps deception, apparently. So back in 27, and we, you know, we're not going to read it all, but verse 15, Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, the elder son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. She also gave savory food and bread. And then uh, Isaac, verse 20, Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have it so quickly, son? And he says, because the Lord has caused it to happen. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come here that I may feel you, son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. 
And then skipping down, you'll see that he ends up receiving the blessing. And the whole scene of Esau comes in and, and says, wait a minute, no, I'm Esau. Who was here earlier? But you know, remember, Esau was a hairy man, so a young goat, Jacob used to secure the blessing from Isaac. And so, too, we see this deception being used here. Now, it's interesting, if you look at verse 34 and 35, so Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for him his son many days. Now, notice this phrase. This is important. Verse 35, for all his sons and all his daughters, it's emphatic, all of his descendants, arose to comfort him. And does it say he was comforted by all of his children and daughters? No, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. In other words, what he's saying is I will never stop mourning until the day I die. Now, on the one hand, yes, to mourn for a lost loved one is one thing. But God is doing something a little different here, I think. God is exposing that Joseph had become an idol to Jacob. And he will expose that. And that will become clear. Verse 36 is set in contrast. Again, we have these little fillers, okay? Meanwhile, meanwhile, back on the farm, or meanwhile, back with Joseph, look at verse 36. The Midianites, who he was sold to, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So, you know, if you think of this as a I don't know, but who watches TV series anymore? I don't know, but Wednesday night at 8 p.m., you know, you, you, you're, you have to wait till next Wednesday night to actually see what happens next. That's kind of the, the feel you get here. Of course, we could just keep reading, but so let's talk about this. This is a striking story, isn't it? And it's, I mean, it's, there's all kinds of nuances here. The brothers are blinded by their sin. The lesson to us is that our sin can blind us. It can make us stupid, and that's what it did to them. Their jealousy is seen so clearly. We read Mark 12. You guys know that story. That's, I don't have time to rehash the, the whole thing, but it's a parable of the vine growers, right? It's rented out. The idea is God rented it out to the Jews or whatever. And then he sends these servants, and they beat some, and they kill others. The servants or the prophets. Finally, he says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. And nope, they killed the son, right? They killed the son as well. And so you see that picture here in verse 6. It says, and he had one more to send, a beloved son. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect him. But these vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Isn't that almost exactly Here comes the dreamer. Let us kill him and let's see what becomes of his dreams. That's another way of saying the inheritance will be ours, but the parallels are amazing. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him in the vineyard. Of course, this is the picture of the Gentiles ultimately coming in. What will the owner of that vineyard do? Certainly he will come and give it to others. Now they should have known better. Jesus makes this reference in John 9, 41, that if you were blind to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But because you say, we see, your sin remains. And the brothers said, oh, we know what we're doing. We, we, we know what we're doing here. This is best. We've thought it out. We've conspired. We've got the cover-up plan. Everything's in place. We know what we're doing. And so their sin remained. 
And then later in the story, you'll see that transformation that takes place. I have to remind you that these patriarchs, as they would become, are the foundations, the very people of God. The Bible doesn't hide the the flaws and the blemishes of the characters of the Bible. They're clearly shown for us. Such malice had seized these men. And what about our wicked hearts? Envy, jealousy, desiring evil, how quickly it can come in, how quickly a cruel thought can come. You know, oh, I, whatever, you know, the, the thing that, that comes to our minds. But we have to remember God is doing something. He's building a nation, a, a, an elect nation, the people of Israel. That, and we today in the new covenant are the Israel of God, a chosen people that love the Lord and worship the Lord. What is God doing here? Well, by the end of Genesis 37, as I said, if you didn't know the rest, Nobody could guess exactly all the the events that would happen. The most skilled person could not guess. But by the end of the story, we see faith and hope and love vindicated very clearly. And not only in the love of the brothers, but also that repentance towards God. We see that Jacob's idolatrous love, and that's what it was for Joseph, that that needs to be challenged and changed. Changed. And also, God must empty Joseph of himself. I mean, you know, 17 years old and you've got the favored robe, you know, that can, that can go to your head. We're not told he was given to pride. But, but whatever the case, Joseph has to go through difficulties and dark tr- trials and providences, bitter and painful things that he and never would have dreamed that he would have to go through. What about us? What about you? Has God wrecked your dreams and somehow in your mind, I thought things were going, just everything was going great. Sideswiped out of nowhere. Plans completely change. A health diagnosis. A loss of a a parent at a very young age, completely unexpected. A career change. A financial collapse. Christian persecution. Fill in the blank. Any number of things that come into our lives. They shock us at the time when these storms come. And then you see the course of the events of your life changing. God surely does not promise us a life of ease. He surely does not promise a life of health and wealth and never being sick. But he does promise that he'll never leave us and never forsake us. He does promise that he loves us so much that he will form us and conform us into the image of Christ and he'll allow us to go through whatever desperate circumstances necessary to bring that about. So for us, we need to think rightly. We need to know the word of God. We need to have that in place. As the hymn says, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do. Or say a couple of concluding um, thoughts for us. God offers hope to messed up families. You might say, you know, I wish my kids behaved better. I wish this or that or the other thing. Uh, you know, little Johnny would just, you know, learn and I wouldn't have to spank him for the 38th time for this one thing, you know. Um, if, if, but there's, there's hope because God is at work. He's sanctifying you, 
and he's preparing your children for wonderful things. He's working in a marvelous way, sometimes ways that we can't even see. Our relationships, they need help. We need to treat one another in the way the 1 Corinthians 13 model that we studied for a couple of months there of not doing some things, but positively doing acts of kindness and love and not keeping a record of accounts and wrongs and envious and all of those things. Robert Murray McShane says this, Oh, believers, you are a tempted people. You are always poor and needy, and God intends it to be so, to give you constant errands to go to Jesus. Some may say, it is not good to be a believer, but ah, see to whom we can go. In other words, he brings these so that we would run back to Jesus, that we'd run back to him all the time, that we would come to the throne of grace again and again and again and again, and that we would love love it there at the throne of grace and have communion with our great high priest. Secondly, God is sovereign over the evil acts of men. Consider the acts committed by these brothers. He provided That is, God provides the opportunity for their sinful hearts to act and to fall into sin. Had they never left home, and Daddy Jacob is right there, and and all the other servants and all of that, they would not have been plotting to do all these things. But in God's providence, sometimes he he provides the opportunity so that sinful hearts can then um, have that choice and to engage in that act. Jacob, of course, did not have to send Joseph to check on the welfare. These are old, older men. They're, they know what they're doing, but no, he sends Joseph so that they would have opportunity. And he is sovereign over your sinful acts too. And yet God is not the author of sin. He ordains circumstances for the wicked deeds that flow from wicked hearts that have a desire to engage in these things. Thankfully, there's so many restraints that he puts around us. There's the restraints of people, there's the restraints of location, the restraints of fear of getting caught, and all of that, because our, all sin comes from our sinful hearts. Mark 7, Jesus makes clear. But he has all of these restraints in the presence of the Holy Spirit and all of these things. But sometimes he provides both motive and opportunity for us to act foolishly in our sin. That's what he did with the brothers, right? He provided the opportunity, sent Joseph right there to them. But what about you on the business trip? You're 1,500 miles away from home. You're in a hotel, a TV that has unlimited access to all the garbage that's out there. Who's going to know? It's on the the corporate's tab. There's not even going to be a credit card to show the extra charge or whatever. How about you teenagers? No one's looking. I can do a quick little search for something I know I shouldn't look at. It's going to pierce my mind for the rest of my life by looking at a pornographic image. Who's going to know? Nobody's home type of thing. The list goes on and on. Um, I'll leave it at that. But why does he allow this for those of us who are in Christ? It's because he wants to reveal the blackness of our hearts. It's because he wants to reveal the glorious, spectacular diamond of the gospel. And the gospel on a a diamond on a white piece of paper, though it sparkles some, is nothing like the black velvet when it is laid on that. 
And so he exposes the blackness of our hearts and of our impatience, of our unkind words, of our looking at things perhaps that that you shouldn't look at and all of those things. Why? That the gospel might become something glorious to you. That you would want to run to Christ, the one who has died in your stead and in your place. You see, the Father in heaven sent His Son for our welfare. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ that He would come and that He would live the perfect life and that He would die in our place. God restrained the brothers from killing Him, but the Father gave of His Son freely to be stripped and cruelly treated treated and then hung on a cross. The very God that gives life to you here today, that causes your heart to beat and causes you to breathe in oxygen and to blow out carbon dioxide by which the oxygen may go through the blood and to strengthen the body. He has given you all of that. He gives you life. He provided every breath for the mocking crowd. Crucify! Crucify! The very strength that was in the Roman soldier's hand as he's nailing the spikes through his ankles and his wrist was given by God. But God was not taken by surprise. We know this, Acts 2.23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan of God and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, putting him to death. Some would say his death was a failure. This moral teacher, this, this, this guy, his, his death was a failure. Look at him. Isn't that what they mocked? They said he saved others, save yourself. He's just mocked again and again. But the complete opposite is true in the resurrection, brethren, of which we glorify and celebrate every week and next week in particular. The resurrection, we see divine love triumphs. He's conquered death. He's provided a way to deliver each and every one of His people through that bloody cross. And it's that bloody cross is the passageway to new life and regeneration in Him. Forgiveness is granted to all who will repent and trust in Jesus, but we must be willing to take off the garment of our own good works and put on the garment of Christ's righteousness, that bloodstained robe. And when that conversion happens, regeneration happens, all the record of your sins is taken away, and the righteous life of Christ is imputed to your account. Think of it. All the times you've been angry. All the times that you've lusted. Perhaps for sex, pleasure, riches. The list goes on and on and on. Prestige and honor. All of these times of pride. All those sins are set aside. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. Listen to Pastor Spurgeon. My hope lives not because I'm not a sinner but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, He is my righteousness. My faith rests upon what I am. My faith rests not upon what I am, what I shall be, what I feel, or what I know, but what Christ is and what He has done and what He is now doing for me. Hallelujah. It is that truth then, brethren, that shapes the way we think, even when our dreams, even when things in our life 
uh, have hit us, sideswiped us, taken us by surprise, difficult things, hard things, of which we don't have time to list all the options, but these, as we'll call it, dark providences. They're dark to us when it comes. But remember, the hymn writer says, a smiling face from heaven is behind every one of them because he is orchestrating all of these things. Think of that. The sins that you've committed against others that you regret with great remorse, and even the sins that you endured that others have given to you that can all be taken away. We're filled with the love of Christ. Psalm 103, verse 9, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. The question I have for you today, do you cherish the gospel? Those of you who are outside of Christ, why are you not desirous to be born again, to come to newness of life? Are you trusting in your good works, your good deeds? Listen to R.C. Sproul, to assume that a holy God winks at sin and grants eternal life on the basis of the performance of our performance is the greatest deception plaguing mankind. The greatest deception that somehow our works will be good enough to earn my way into heaven rather than the finished work of Christ. Look to him. He was the sacrifice of sinners, but come on his terms, repenting and trusting in him. Let us pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for your word, how we thank you for your perfect sovereignty, your great love. What manner of love is this that the Father has demonstrated to us? How we thank you that you've shown that even in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we boast in the cross. We boast in the name above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you draw near to each and every one of us here. Encourage the believers. Encourage the saints that have travailed through difficulties and trials and storms that need your encouragement today. That what we see today, what Joseph saw that day, was far different from what just a few years down the road would bring. And Lord, for us, we have a limited sight. What we see today... It's not likely where we will be a couple of years from now. And so, Lord, increase our faith and our trust. And, Lord, for any who are outside of Christ, may they have dealings with you, true dealings with you. May our young people not even be able to rest. May they wrestle, as it were, even as Jacob himself wrestled with you earlier in Genesis, Lord. May they wrestle with you about how to come to terms of peace and trusting in Christ. We pray in his name and for his glory alone. Amen.